from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how infrastructure is banking on green banks, Unilever puts net zero up for a vote, BSR on why business needs resilience, and an oceanographer moves to higher ground. We're heading for the hills this week on 350. It's March 26, 2021. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from sunny Midland Park, New Jersey is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. How are you today? I'm fine. I'm sad. <laughs> An end of a crazy busy <laughs> week. You don't sound very week, certain but, of that. <laughs> yeah, no. I'm, I'm actually really good. I'm Greenfin Conference coming up in a few, three weeks is is running my life, and but it is worth <laughs> every second of it because mm-hmm. oh my god i'm so excited about the lineup it's just turned out i mean you know you always go into these things with high hopes and high expectations but this has really exceeded them so excited about that but you know this week was it was infrastructure week <laughs> just <a laughs> what does that mean joke, joel <laughs> a bit of a tongue-in-cheek but but actually not uh this week on Monday, we announced uh, Verge Infrastructure, the latest component of our uh, Verge conference series uh, that Verge Infrastructure will join Verge Energy, Verge Food, Verge Carbon, uh, and Verge uh, Mobility uh, on the agenda uh, it coming up in October. And to commemorate that or to drive that home, perhaps, uh, all seven, count them, seven of our weekly newsletters focused on infrastructure so infrastructure week and you wrote you wrote two of those seven (laughs) yeah yes that just that's how the chips fell this week (laughs) but yes super interesting topics um so exciting so much opportunity um we're going to we're going to talk about one of them in a moment but one of the the fascinating interviews i did was was just about how you include the people that are going to be affected by the infrastructure in those decisions. And, um, you know, we haven't t- traditionally done a very good job of that as as a country as and as communities. And, and so I, I had an opportunity to speak with some folks from Elemental Accelerator, but um, a great group in, in Oakland, California, called Transform. Um, their executive director was just named to a, a, a California commission um, on transportation, which is kind of cool. Um, like after I did the interview, it was like, whoa. <laughs> um, and just, yeah, it was, it's a, I'm excited about this because I've been covering building technologies for a while. Like, so buildings, like j- not just, uh, you know, so like, I, there's so much that falls into this, right? So I, I, I'm getting all turned around because you can write about buildings, you can write about, write about roads, you can write about green infrastructure, like bioswales, and there's so much... Airports, ports, pipelines, internet infrastructure, digital mm, infrastructure. Yes, exactly. Yes, yep, yep, yep. Blockchain, it would even be part of it in, in theory, you know? I mean, like, if you think, if you, it has so many different meanings for our audience that, that it's an exciting um, 
it's an exciting time and I'm I'm really feeling great that we're we're making this commitment at the Burge conference. Well, we've sort of already gone there, but let's bring out the music, strike up the band for the week in review. So yeah, let's go back to infrastructure. You wrote uh, two pieces, as we said, and one of them had to do with green banks for our weekly Greenfin newsletter. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about what you what a green bank is and, and what you learned. <laughs> well, it's not a bank that's green with a you know facade that's green or anything like that. Um, I don't know if I particularly like the term, to be quite honest. And, and I know you have mixed feelings about green as an adjective as well. But the idea is it's a, a way of using public money to inspire more private investments. So that's like the really simplistic view of this. Um, And there have been, uh, you know, about 20 state and local ones in in the United States that have been in in operation helping, helping do things like, you know, ranging from giving low, you know, giving low income communities loans for energy efficiency updates or helping uh, you know, drive community solar installations and so forth. So there have been um, com- companies in green banks in places like Michigan, and the, the, I think the really the oldest sort of poor profit one was in Connecticut. Um, it's doing great work, but it is a phenomenon that um, more states are looking into and would like to get involved with. And, and the sort of the, what's happening right now with the Biden administration's national level interest in infrastructure is that there is a proposal for uh, hundreds of billions of dollars, well, 100 billion to be specific, uh, in of public funds dedicated for a national level green bank over the next decade. And, and that that sort of national level institution would would really help inspire the foundation and creation of, of banks, in theory, all over the country um, to help with green infrastructure decisions and investments. Yeah, this is something that uh, my co-authors, uh, Patrick Doherty and Mark Mickleby, and I wrote about in our 2016 book, The uh, mm-hmm. uh, New Grand Strategy. I had to think about what the book's title was for a second. It's been a while. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there have been these national infrastructure banks uh, in the past and, and lots of proposals for them in more recent years of how do we leverage uh, not just government funds, but uh, private sector funds, in- investors, to invest in uh, the infrastructure that we need. We, we have uh, trillions and trillions of dollars a year needed for uh, infrastructure here in the United States. And 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 there's obviously parts of the world that uh, that don't have any infrastructure at all, that they just need the, the, the first go around. We're replacing a lot of ours. Um, and so where does that money come from? Uh, yep. We're going to talk yep. actually again at Greenfin a little bit about uh, uh, $249 trillion of, of capital that's out there in various forms uh, to address the SDGs and, that was and, and Paris. trillion? Wow. Well, yeah, it's funny. Uh, uh, Marilyn Waite from the Hewlett Foundation is going to do that uh, presentation um, on the second day of Verge, uh, second day of Greenfin 21. Um, and I told her the other day, uh, you know, we in sustainability have just learned to use the T word trillion because we weren't <laughs> thinking that big. And now we're talking about 
a quarter of a quadrillion dollars of a potentially available capital. I mean, we have quickly gone uh, from the T word to the Q word, and I think that's uh, indicative and, and and potentially very exciting. But right. but you know, how do you deploy that money, and and what are the mechanisms? And I think the green bank. Uh, uh, idea is one that's already been around, as you said, but is yeah. ripe for, uh, you know, if we could do this at a national level, if we could make infrastructure, uh, you know, more apple pie than it somehow has become. And by the way, I don't, the Green, and the green Bank is probably the wrong name for it in some, some states uh, yeah. here in the U.S. By the way, I don't mind green as an adjective. Heather, I don't like it as a verb. I hate it as a verb. <laughs> okay, we are greening start. up our thing. We're going to, you know, the greening of our company. That's a, you know, it's just, that's when I don't like it. And we get so many press releases that talk about green as a verb, as if it's, you know, too green. I green, you green, he, she, it greens. Nah, not so much. But I anyway. sit corrected then. I sit corrected. <laughs> uh, to, to go back to the green banks thing for a moment, though, then, you know, I mean, how does this work? Well, it works by helping de-risk that private investment. I think that's part of the thing. The other thing we should really mention is that for every, you know, like, to go back to that big puck bucket of money you were mentioning. So for every, uh, you know, $2 of private sector, you know, there could be up to $2 of private sector investment uh, for every public dollar invested. That's sort of like the base level idea. But some some banks talk about 30 to 1 ratio, private to public sector funding, and it works by de-risking. So like the public money is used to help create loan reserves or credit guarantees or or bundling arrangements that makes that it makes it more attractive for the private money. And the thing that's really particularly appealing to me is that a lot of the focus is on communities that haven't had the opportunity to use that money in the past. So for example, some projects, I mean there's some solar projects just simply aren't big enough for for commercial banks to really pay attention to for a loan, right? So they, they just don't, it's just not that worth their interest. So this helps make smaller projects much more attractive. It also helps uh, provide a lending vehicle or a, a way of financing uh, for, for people that haven't maybe used credit before or haven't you know, don't really have a traditional sort of credit history. So it, you know, people or companies for that matter. So I just... I think it's just a great concept and, and it is exciting that there's a national level discussion. I know there have been several rounds of this before, but it really does have bipartisan support. Uh, I mean, I, one of the points I made in this was that, you know, Alaska and South Carolina are both really excited about it. So it's just a great bipartisan opportunity. Well, let's hope bipartisan support uh, uh leads to bipartisan votes because that doesn't mm-hmm. always seem to yeah, track. That's true. But speaking of voting, let's move over to another story. Uh, this one came to us from uh, Michael Holder over at Business Green across the pond uh, about Unilever uh, being the first company to put its net zero plans up for a shareholder vote at its annual general meeting in early May. Um, that's really interesting. And I think it goes... Uh, well, it goes in part a ways to uh, mitigate some of the, the challenges and a lack of oversight of what it what net zero means, uh, because there 
you know, as we've written about in the past, uh, there is no definition. Uh, everybody's doing it. What does it mean? Everyone's talking about it. And, 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 and so uh, this doesn't solve that particular problem, but having board oversight and, and you know, putting it, aligning it with, with science, aligning it with, uh, you know, the guidelines of the task force on climate-related financial disclosures is a really, I think, a bold move. And th- by the way, they're not waiting till mid-century. They're, they're going for 2039. Um, so anyway, those are ambitious plans. And I think uh, putting this up and making sure that the, comp- the, the board and therefore the shareholders who bought into this is an important thing. You know, we've seen this before. One last thing I'll say is, you know, over at NRG Energy, uh, when David Crane was making some bold moves but did not have the board support, and you know, lo and behold, the board let him go. This is intended to mitigate that in part and help that Alan Yop, the uh, CEO of Unilever, uh, you know, have the have his back really as he mm-hmm. tries to lead the company down this net zero path. Him, but also it it puts the managers of the company on notice um, in a way that's maybe even more compelling than that compensation <laughs> stuff that we've talked about in the recent past. I mean, it, it does require the all the other executives on the team to really focus in on having specifics, having an actually quantifiable, trackable disclosable strategy that that you have to talk about and meet um and it you know makes it makes them you know it puts them on notice as well it it gives them you know gives them the back but also puts them on notice that they need to operate against it and maybe actually um i think one of the things that could help with is just sort of the the way that the analyst community in wall street looks at it right if these things get started started get discussed on a quarterly call with more regularity that's that's also again sort of a heightened level of scrutiny that that would be welcomed yeah it's great when these things become normalized uh and they're they're not sitting off to the side they're part of analyst calls they're part of board meetings they're part of the 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 general business of business and uh, we're seeing that in so many ways these days it's 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 really refreshing and uh, and hopeful uh, we'll hear more about that in an interview with uh, Peter Bacher later on about uh, what he's learning from CEOs and about the, the these nine pathways to uh, 2050 vision of uh, of a livable world for 9 billion people that, that they've laid out over at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. Um, but let's move over to our third story. Uh, and uh, Heather, you really were uh, excited about talking about this one. Uh, it's from Leo Rowdies, who's the president and CEO of an organization called Call to Recycle, about batteries. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, turn us on to batteries. <laughs> well, I mean, and one of the reasons that I really appreciated this story is because I feel like the energy storage um, technology space in general is something that, you know, I'll put myself on notice here that we need to be covering more. I, every time we put a story up about bat, you know, next generation batteries or battery technologies, it really gets well read. I think people are really interested in understanding, you know, this, we're creating all this renewable energy. How are we making it available when it's not necessarily available, right? You know, the, the sort of the ability to take it, um, take the solar power and store it for the night, you know, and, and so forth, or for a, 
a disruption in in somehow from from a weather event. But the the point of his this article um, by Leo Rowdy is is that these batteries don't last forever, right? Um, by twenty thirty five, it's expected that. 46 million electric vehicles be on the roads, each with a sophisticated battery pack. Those things last, I don't know, I think some of the the latest uh, expectations are in the 10-year range. So what what happens to that afterwards? How does it get used? How does it get mined, if you will, for the materials that are inside it? What the materials that that go into these things are not necessarily... um, going to be available forever. We've got demand increasing for cobalt, lithium, nickel, graphite, manganese. We've talked about um, lithium shortages in the past, but now they're saying um, now we're saying that nickel shortages could start in five or six years. So how do you take that material that's been pulled out of the ground and keep it in circulation? So it's the the, the idea of these batteries being uh, you know circular. And so I think that um, there's a lot more work that needs to be done about how how these things are taken back, um, what what services are in place to extend their life or find other other uses for them, um, make maybe make their life permanent. I don't know. I don't know how long these things could last in reality, but I just it was just one of these stories that um, about an issue that I think we need to all be paying more attention to. That uh, again puts me on notice um, for for some things that I should be thinking about. Yeah. And of course, it's not just electric vehicles, as Leo points out in this article. Uh, in the next four years alone, the, the need for large batteries and renewable energy installations, in other words, energy storage for the yep. grid, will be at least 10 times what it is today. And I, I, that may be well be conservative. And, and it, it's only going to grow from there uh, because uh, grid storage is just now becoming a thing. Uh, and, and that also includes, you know, what the, the, those Tesla power walls that people are putting in their homes and, <laughs> right. and, and as well as those from, from other vendors. Uh, those are, you know, I, to your point earlier, we're just getting to the point now where we're starting to think about what happens to all these things at the end of their, what once upon a time seemed like a long lifespan. So uh, batteries is one of those. Uh, solar panels is another. They have a roughly 20 year mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, a number of those are starting to age out. And, and what do we do with those? Uh, how do those not go into landfills? How do those get reclaimed, uh, materials reclaimed or refurbished or something put to productive use uh, made uh, circular? And so, you know, we're starting to design these things for the future, but we have all this legacy equipment. Uh, there was just a big announcement this week of a consortium working on e-waste, same thing, all these uh, computers and uh, monitors and, and so many things that uh, we all know and love and are using as we speak uh, that you know have an even shorter life. And, and we're just beginning to understand that not just the impact of that in the environment and on human health, but also the lost resource opportunity, particularly, as you say, when we're starting to, you know, bump up against limits of cobalt, lithium, nickel, graphite, manganese. So this is a a hugely important issue. And I think what Leo Rowdy's wrote this week is just the first you'll be hearing about this issue that's, uh, you know, eventually going to hopefully get a lot of policymakers and waste management people, but equally important, the, the, the manufacturers of these products all charged up.
I'm Deanna Anderson, senior editor at GreenBiz, and I'm joined by oceanographer John Englander, whose book, Moving to Higher Ground, Rising Sea Level and the Path Forward, will be hitting shelves on April 6th. Hi, John. Hi, Deanna. Um, so I'm really excited to dive into your book with you, uh, and I want to start with a level-setting question. So in a sentence or two, can you describe uh, what Moving to Higher Ground is about? Sure. Moving to Higher Ground explains that sea level rise is, first of all, unstoppable, which is hard to comprehend. Sea level hasn't changed much in 6,000 years of recorded human history. But the first thing I do is put it in geologic context. Sea level naturally goes up and down about 400 feet with the ice ages. And we just happen to be coming through the recent uh, turning phase where it's going from the up phase to the down phase. So the 6,000 years of recorded human history of sea level being flat or, or unchanging is, is a kind of deluge, uh, you know, misnomer, a misunderstanding. And I explained that because of the warming of the planet at this point, we really need to get our heads around planning for future sea level rise, which is now unstoppable. And I try and put in a positive sense of thinking uh, short, medium, long term. How do we think of future generations, the social and political aspects, and just kind of some uh, mind tricks, if you will, to take this devastating news and turning it into a positive opportunity. Yeah. So you just mentioned one of the questions that I have for you. So um Sea level rise is inevitable, it's a crisis, um, but there's also opportunities that come along with adapting uh, to rising seas. Can you describe what those opportunities are uh, to slow sea level rise and also like what we can do to, to adapt? Sure. Well, the first thing to slow sea level rise, we need to slow the warming. And of course, there's lots of discussion going on these days about how to get off fossil fuels, how to switch to renewable energy, how to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, which is what's the uh, adding to the insulation layer of the atmosphere, the greenhouse gases. So all of those things, which are in you know, very uh, uh, public debate at the moment in terms of policy, not only under the Biden administration, but trying to adhere to the uh, Paris Climate Agreement of 2015, um, we've, we've all heard lots of ideas for how to slow the warming. And that can eventually slow sea level rise, maybe by about 20 or 30 percent. So that's significant, and we should try and do that. The second part of your question, what do we do with the sea level rise we can't stop at this point, because we've already warmed the oceans about one degree Celsius, almost two degrees Fahrenheit. That heat is trapped in the ocean. And it's going to cause Antarctica and Greenland to melt more and more. And that is going to cause global sea level to rise. The good news is it can't happen that quickly. In other words, we can't get a lot of sea level rise in the next decade. Ice doesn't melt that quickly. On the other hand, you can't stop it. So we can begin thinking differently, short, medium, long term. And I like to think of short term thinking as perhaps a decade or so, uh, solving a local problem of road flooding. Then thinking out 30 to 50 years, the, the period of a mortgage. And um, so 30 years gets us to mid-century, the year 2050. And then thinking out long-term, a century from now, what will things be like? If we begin thinking that short, medium, and long-term thinking, which is really quite natural to do um, and, and easy, we can begin thinking about the future differently than the problems we're facing today. And we can change building codes. We can we can see that zoning in the next decade may be different than zoning by mid-century and zoning 100 years from now. And that kind of mindset will help us plan and adapt for the future. 
For sure. So I kind of want to throw a question in there um, because before we started recording, um, you mentioned this article in Green Biz that you mentioned in your <laughs> book. Um, and I'm curious if, so the article is about the five stages of grief um, and can kind of comparing that to our angst about climate change. Do you feel like it's necessary um, to go through all of those changes or all of those uh, five stages of grief uh, related to climate change in order to start like reacting to it or trying to adapt at all? Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. It was the article a few years ago by Scott Nadler and uh, who's become a friend uh, having uh, heard me talk years ago at a sustainability conference. And uh, you don't have to go through the five stages of grief, but I think the point is that the idea that sea level rise is unstoppable, that over the next century, whether sea level rises four feet or 10 feet, we have a big problem on our hands. The coastline is going to change all over the world. It's not just Miami and New Orleans and Venice, Italy. It's 10,000 coastal cities. And we have to think differently than in all of human civilization, which again goes back about five or 10,000 years. Um, the stages of grief just puts into, into perspective that when we lose something we love, which can be a person, but it can be a place, that it takes some time to adjust. And at first we don't want to accept it. And we go through the similar kind of emotions when we think about losing New Orleans, Miami, Venice, uh, parts of the Bay Area where you live, uh, parts of Annapolis or Boston or Jakarta, or I could go around and around the world, Mumbai, Shanghai. Uh, it's, it's difficult because we've assumed the coastline is permanent. It's not. It never was. And it's now accelerating. Uh, we see it as coastal erosion and extreme high tides. But the underlying change factor is rising sea level. So the stage of the grief is just a vehicle to say when we're faced with grave loss, usually for a loved one, but humans have what's called place attachment. We actually love places often where we grew up or where our vacation home was when we were kids. And so losing loved places is almost as difficult as losing loved people. Um, so kind of shifting gears a little bit, um, one of the things that I consider often when like reporting about solutions or mitigations to uh, the effects of climate change is like how things will be equitable, if they will be equitable. Um, and there's this term climate gentrification. Um, and I, just for listeners, I want to give a little bit of a definition um, that I found from the Environmental Law Institute. Um, which describes climate gentrification as the process of wealthier, often wider populations moving uh, to areas less exposed to the effects of climate change um, that were previously occupied by lower income residents and communities of color, and that exacerbates displacement <laughs> and disparities. Um, so, John, a question for you. Where is climate gentrification happening now uh, with respect to sea level rise? Sure. I'm quite certain the, the term originated in Miami or Dade County, Florida, about an hour south of where I live. And I'm sure it applies elsewhere, but it, it's certainly in common discussion in Miami for probably five years now. And it describes a phenomenon where the uh, 
many wealthier people or, you know, upper socioeconomic strata were able to live in areas close to the sea, but many of those are low-lying, of course, and are flooding more and more during these king tide days more, more regularly. And so what's been happening is the awareness of more routine flooding, even without storms in the area, just by extreme high tides, which are being driven higher because of rising sea level, some of those wealthier people have been buying the kind of poorer neighborhoods and and you know I- improving them because they're on higher ground a little bit further inland and so that's this gentrification phenomenon and the concern is at social equity to uh that if you you know a person who's got a million dollar condo on the beach but doesn't want like walking through flooding streets that they may band together or a developer may take over a poorer neighborhood in little Haiti or some of the poorer parts of Miami and fix it up. But where do the people with less economic ability go move? And so that's the phenomenon. And I think worldwide, without using the term gentrification, there's a bigger question that as sea level rises inch by inch, which it will and and actually accelerate, that um, we have to start thinking about not only where we live, but what happens in poorer countries, particularly like Bangladesh and Vietnam, but really all over the world in coastal areas, those people are going to need a place to move to. The wealthier may have more options, will have more options. Yeah, it's kind of like gentrification playing out in this very specific um, part of uh, the effects of climate change. Um, In your response to that last question, you mentioned Miami um, and Officials in Miami-Dade County recently released a plan for addressing sea level rise. From your view, what does the plan leave out? Well, the plan was a good start. It was a fresh kind of overview and looking out to the year 2060 and up to two feet of sea level rise. Uh, again, I, I think it's a it was a nicely done starting point. It I think oversimplified the question of how to raise property elevations. It said to bring in artificial fill. I assume that means dirt, you know, like you, or gravel. Um, I think the problem of all the low-lying properties in Dade County, which is a very large area of a few dozen communities, uh, we have porous limestone in, in South Florida. So, even building seawalls won't keep the water out. The water will percolate up through the ground. So you have to raise the actual ground height as opposed to build a seawall to keep the water out. And as a result, um, the amount of fill that would be required and the fact that particularly with lower income houses where somebody can't just bulldoze the house or really has a house they can they can properly elevate five feet, that uh, the plan you know, minimizes the challenge in an area of porous limestone and wide, widespread low areas. How do we raise the ground elevation? So that's the first difficulty. The second is it only looks out to the year 2060 and two feet of sea level rise. And it's all well and good to make that the first benchmark, but you kind of got to get an idea of where we're heading after that and what happens when sea level is four feet higher. It's a much bigger problem. So those would be the two concerns I would have with the plan. Is there anything from the plan that you think that other cities um, 
will be able to learn from the Miami plan? Well, I think, again, I think the way they organized it and tried to look at it is a good start. I would point actually to Boston's plan of living with water that was done several years before as a little more aggressive and uh, in two senses. One is they looked out to five feet of sea level rise, as I recall, a much higher number, and recognized, again, that you need to look beyond mid-century if you're really going to plan the change of infrastructure and and, um, zoning and, and so on. And Boston took a fairly controversial position of saying, what happens if, again, the sea level is five feet higher? There are certain roads that may need to turn into canals even. Um, so it was a very futuristic look. And I think, um, I think that's probably my favorite or, um, that's the plan in America at the moment that I think is most aggressive or futuristic. So in your book, there's a chapter, um, titled who will lead politicians, professionals, or public. And it made me wonder, um, what role, if any, corporations can play in addressing sea level rise? Because it seems like there's a role for everyone <laughs> to kind of address it. So, yeah, what role do co- corporations can, like, what can they play? Sure. Well, if you think about individuals, I mean, you and I and everybody we know as a person, that's one thing. Then the second thing is uh, I call professionals, the architects, engineers. That's a different category. People who in their job can actually um, you know, help come up with the tools and the and the adaptation uh, methodology. Then, of course, we have corporations, which we'll come back to here, the, your question. And then we have government, right? And so if you think of those different sectors, as I'm saying, or, or categories of people, the uh, corporations are really important because corporations have much greater resources than a person typically. And they can probably think more creatively than government because they're not bound to one place. So if a corporation said we have assets that are exposed to sea level rise in South Carolina or Alabama or Texas, uh, a corporation may have more flexibility of saying, what should we do for strategic planning looking out over the next 30 years so that we're well positioned for the future? just as we try and be well positioned in the energy sector, getting off of fossil fuels into renewables. But how can we anticipate with the knowledge that sea level will be several feet higher and that we can't exactly predict the rate because of the melting of Antarctica and Greenland? So a corporation has the resources and the flexibility to be creative in solutions that perhaps governments don't because governments are typically locked into a location you can't, you know, you if, if you're the government of, of Dade County, Florida, back to your last question, uh, you can't say, well, if we could just move this to Colorado. <laughs> so whereas the corporation could sell assets in Florida and move to Colorado. Um, so that's why I think that the corporations have a great opportunity. And then the, the stronger resources than the typical individual. For sure. Do you have any final thoughts about your book or things that GreenBiz readers um, should know about this inevitable thing that is sea level rise? Um, I guess just two points come to mind. I mean, obviously, I'd like them to buy the book. Uh, I think there's a lot of good information in it. The earlier reviews have been great. But the, the probably the two or three biggest concepts that, I'm, that I think it's just worth sharing with your listeners here is, again, sea level rise is unstoppable because we've warmed the oceans. We know what happens looking back in geologic history when the planet's 
uh, at temperatures like the present, sea level's been 25 feet higher. So that's not going to happen this century. It might not even happen next century. But we need to wake up and realize that based upon geologic history, a warmer planet has less ice on land, Greenland, Antarctica primarily, and um, and higher sea level, and the shoreline is going to move inland. So that's just fact one that most people don't realize. Uh, we need to get realistic about thinking in what I suggest is three different time frames. Again, the, the next decade, mid-century, 30 years out, and then a century from now, it's the year 2120, of course, 2121, and uh, begin envisioning a different world. Because if we can see the long term, we can plan the short and medium term better. So um, we have to really free ourselves from this construct we've had that sea level is sea level and the shoreline is the shoreline. They've only been there, the sea level and the shoreline, for about 6,000 years. Now, that seems like forever, but things are changing very quickly because the ice sheets in Antarctica and Greenland are melting faster and faster every decade. I so appreciate your insights and perspective, and I'm excited for folks uh, to read your book, which we'll be running an excerpt from on April 9th. Um, But for now, thank you, John, for coming on GreenBiz 350. I appreciate talking to you. Thanks, Dion. I've enjoyed it. This week, the nonprofit BSR published a report on resilient business strategies. It calls for companies to better anticipate material changes to their operating environment, develop and test strategies to adapt to those changes, and allocate resources accordingly. Resilient Businesses says BSR will be better prepared to capture strategic advantage and contribute to the realization of thriving societies. And here to tell us more is BSR President and CEO, Aaron Kramer. Hey, Aaron. Hi, Joel. Good to be with you. First, give us a little context. What led to BSR issuing this report? Well, uh, a couple of things. One is we've been working on resilience in some very specific contexts. So related to climate, obviously, and also uh, agriculture. Um, That combined with a growing sense that the days when we should be talking about integrating sustainability into a business strategy as if you enter from two separate rooms, that that was no longer the way to think about the world. And then, by the way, a lot of unexpected things have happened over the last 12 months or so. And that's only reinforced our sense that for businesses to thrive and for us to have a just and sustainable world, this was a better way to think about how businesses should craft their strategies. I mean, at some level, being an adaptive and resilient company during a time of systemic change and disruption is a bit, you know, it's not business school 101, but it's 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 almost motherhood and apple pie. What's different now? Obviously, we've gone through what we've gone through, but how does that manifest in business strategy? Well, I think you're right that the concept of resilience is not a new one. The, the concept of anticipating change is not a new one. But the importance of addressing those things is off the charts higher than it ever has been before. So we're experiencing lots of different changes, but let's talk about three. So one is the transition to a net zero economy. And that's not just making existing business models a little bit greener. That is remaking business models. Obviously, technology and understanding not only 
what the new technologies are and how to make sense of them in a business, but how to implement them and frankly design them in a way that will be accepted uh, by society. The third is the massive cultural and generational change that is taking place. It's about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but it doesn't stop there. The you know, rising generations have very different expectations about what they want to see from employers, what they expect as customers and citizens. So those three things are flowing together. And we think that uh, the businesses that look to anticipate, but go beyond that and really shape those changes and make them work for them inside their business are the ones that are going to succeed. Is it a new concept? No. Is the importance of doing it in 2021, looking ahead bigger than ever before? Absolutely. I'm sure that this requires some new kinds of governance or governance strategies, particularly uh, in a world that's been notorious for short-term thinking. What should companies be thinking about from the governance perspective? Well, first of all, board diversity has been a topic for a long time. We're starting to see some incremental change. That's good. Hopefully it will accelerate. And yes, it is absolutely about representation on the board so that people from different backgrounds are, are contributing to um, board deliberations. But it goes well beyond that. It's also about perspectives, experience, uh, and, and networks. And we see this in a variety of ways. I think understanding the implications of, of the importance of DEI and how to, how to really make it work, uh, both as a matter of social justice and also about uh, a, a business is really important. And we also see an ongoing disconnect between the number of uh, boards who acknowledge climate as an existential issue and the number of boards that believe themselves that they have the qualifications to deal with it. And in our work with boards, and we're talking with boards more than ever before these days, we see that on display. In most companies, you see a number of directors who really understand the importance of climate, what to do about it, but there's still a very large number that don't. And, and that really needs to shift. Can you connect the dots between DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, and resilience? Because I'm not sure it's obvious. Sure. Well, we've seen, um, and, and I'll talk in the American context for the moment, long-standing fractures in society that broke open in new ways in, in 2020. And uh, if, if I'm a company, you know, they're great companies based in Minneapolis, you know, they, they faced some pretty significant challenges in the wake of the murder of George Floyd last, last June and July and ongoing. And the, the, the flaws in the social contract, the flaws in uh, basic you know, justice and security, the flaws in access to education, the, the, the inability for people to participate in the economy, those are all things that are not just a matter of social justice. They have to do with whether a business can actually um, bring the right products and services to market, whether they can attract the right people, whether they can keep the right people, whether they have the kinds of relationships they need at a time of, of, of a lot of uh, great foment and change in society. I'm sure there's a policy piece in here too. What should companies be thinking about in terms of, of what they'd like to see, whether it's from the Securities and Exchange Commission here in the US or its equivalent elsewhere or uh, legislatures or anything else? Well, I'd, I'd point to a couple of things. So, and, and in our paper, we talk about resilient business and also resilient societies. And resilient societies, obviously, 
uh, depend uh, quite a lot on, on the right public policy framework. So two changes that I think would make uh, a, a big difference that I would like to see businesses pushing for even more. Again, in the US, we're seeing an opening uh, in the SEC to look at whether it's climate risk or just long-term value for all, all shareholder, all stakeholders in new ways. Businesses should use their voice to call for those changes because it will create space for long-term decision-making, which all businesses want to be able to make. That's one, and there's a great opportunity there. The second um, is the social contract needs modernizing, whether it's about skill development, employment, um, or the social safety net, businesses benefit from having good economic mobility, good economic security, uh, and those require public policy changes. They're, they, businesses can do a lot, but they can't, nor should they do everything. So what's ESR going to be doing with all this? Uh, what, what's your resilient business strategy? Well, um, I think every organization has uh, tried to prove itself resilient. And I, I guess I should give a shout out to my colleagues who've done great work over the last year under the same circumstances we've all been dealing with. Um, but what are we gonna do with this? Well, first of all, we wanna raise awareness and we want people to be thinking in this way um, and because that leads to, to other steps. So, um, and, and that means looking in a more of a futures oriented way. So the kinds of scenario thinking um, and analysis that are part of the TCFD, part of the, the work that the Sustainable Futures Lab that BSR pushes, we'd like to see companies at senior level uh, do, do a great deal uh, more, more of that. We'd like to see, to help equip sustainability leaders, the chief sustainability officer, to have even more influence in board decisions because a lot of the core skills that the chief sustainability officer has um, understanding diverse networks, looking to the future, looking at multiple forms of value, social license to operate. Those are all key building blocks of, of, uh, of, of a resilient business strategy. And then finally, we've put forward a, a framework, a number of building blocks of what we think can make up a resilient business strategy. We look forward to working with our member companies to help apply those in their thinking and, and put them into action. The report is called Resilient Business Strategies. It can be found at bsr.org. Aaron Kramer is the president and CEO of BSR. Always great to talk to you, Aaron. Thanks so much. Same here, Joel. Thank you. The World Business Council for Sustainable Development this week issued the Vision 2050 Time to Transform, a framework for business action to enable 9 billion people to live well and within planetary boundaries by the middle of the century. The report is the culmination of two years of work by WBCSD and 40 member companies, including Unilever, Ikea, Toyota, Microsoft, 3M, Nestle, and Volkswagen. The report notes that to reach these goals will require transformation at scale and that business needs to focus its actions on where it can lead these systemic transformations. Joining me now to talk about it is the president and CEO of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, Peter Bacher. Greetings, Peter. Hi, great to see you. So this report's an update of a 2010 report you did that covered similar ground. What's different this time around? I think a couple of things are different. The, uh, the vision, the words haven't changed, but the underlying 
arguments have been science-based and expert-checked, uh, uh, so the vision is more robust. The big change, however, is the fact that we now all realize that in order to make a vision like this come about, we need system transformation. So the systemic nature of the change that we need, and that requires both uh, engineering solutions, how do we move to renewable energy, electric transport and the likes. And, and the other big new thing in, in this edition is we really need to change the mindset of business leaders. And fundamental to that is we need to reinvent capitalism. So a lot of big concepts there. And, and, and I guess the challenge is, where do we start? We're facing a climate crisis, a biodiversity crisis, a social equity crisis, a social justice crisis. It all seems so overwhelming. Where do you want to see companies and particularly CEOs lean into this? I think you know there's big opportunities in, uh, in in 2021, both the COP26 as well as the UN Food System Summit. They all offer CEOs the opportunity to bring systemic solutions. You know, take for instance regenerative agriculture when it comes to the Food System Summit. It won't only benefit the biodiversity by uh, upgrading the quality of soil. It will sequester carbon in the soil. It will give farmers new sources of income. So we really need to begin to look at what are the solutions that do not only fix climate or inequality or, or biodiversity issues, but finds the synergies between all of them. So the report calls for a shared vision of the future that seems to be a thread throughout. Uh, it says that to achieve sustainable development, we need a clear picture of where we want to go and a pathway to get there. And the report lays out a pretty detailed vision of what a healthy society looks like and what it means to live within planetary boundaries. What do you think it's going to take for this shared version to be, well, shared? Well, I think, you know, the, the, the first answer is, uh, as you said in your intro, this report has been built over the last two years with 40 of the global uh, companies that, uh, that we have in our membership. And so to some great extent, this is already shared. Um, what you saw in, uh, in, in last year in WBC is these membership criteria. They have now basically reflected this new vision by saying that if you want to be a member of WBCSD, you need to have a net zero plan by no later than 2050, a nature positive plan. You need to uh, promote uh, inclusive and diversity and human rights. So the, the, the vision is embodied and those membership criteria have been accepted through an AGM vote by all our members. So I don't think so much the, the issue is around whether the vision is shared or not. The real issue is about can we get companies to really lead the transformations that will get us to that, to that vision. And that's where I think this report will provide real help because we've broken this big system change down into nine transformation pathways related to the essential products and services that business provides to society, describes what key transitions are required to make those transformations happen, and what, most importantly, are the action areas that business needs to deploy between 2020 and 2030. Because as we know, the coming decade is really the crucial decade if we want to achieve the vision at all. How has the past year changed this vision? Everything that's happened and is still happening. 
Well, I think the, the past year has made the, um, the S in ESG or the inequality in the three challenges much more important than it probably would have been without the pandemic. Um, I think we all realize uh, a couple of things now. The, the issues that we talk about, climate, nature, the health of people and society are all interconnected. The other thing we have realized is the uh, resilience of our societies, our systems, the ability to deal with shocks like the, like the pandemic is really not strong enough. And if you look at climate, if you look at nature, if you look at the social unrest coming out of inequality, further shocks are to be expected. So I think resilience becomes more important. The social agenda becomes more important. And uh, yeah, that means the, the need to shift systems is much better recognized. World Business Council has been working with the Vatican on a uh, inclusive capitalism uh, pro project um, that aligns with, I guess, as your redefining value uh, uh, initiative that the, the councils had. That seems both potentially exciting and potentially uh, impotent. Imp uh, that seems potentially exciting and potentially powerful. Um, where do you hope to see that going? It, it feels in some ways like that could just be an exercise in, in uh, you know, academic exercise. And does that have the potential to really change things and move the needle? I think all these initiatives are important because what it does, it brings the need to change capitalism clearly in focus. You know, you. You can't read the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal anymore without conversations about how to change capitalism. What I think, though, is more important in the change of capitalism is actually how do we get business and capital markets on this agenda? How do we integrate environmental and social risks into the enterprise risk systems? How do we standardize the ESG, the things that the IFRS, SASB, and others are now pushing towards? How do we make sure that TCFD becomes the leading governance model in business? And then last but not least, how do we ensure that the capital markets will integrate sustainability into their capital allocation models? You know, the, the view there is very simple. The day that more sustainable businesses will attract a lower cost of capital is the day that the sustainability conversation will accelerate at the pace that we need. And we're sort of on our way there. We're starting to see the beginnings of that. Uh, when you look at the, all of the pathways and, and initiatives that are outlined in the Time to Transform report, uh, it's a lot. Did it leave you more or less optimistic about our ability to get where we need to go? Uh, forget 2050, but just by the end of this decade. Yeah, you know, when you work in, in, in the sustainability arena, there's no space for, for doubt or pessimism. Uh, you know, we are very clear in this report, unless in the, the decade we're in now, we make these transformations start at scale, there's no hope of delivering Vision 2050. And those are big statements, you know, then you will not have 9 billion people living well. We will not live within the planetary boundaries, which means the safe operating space for humanity is at risk. So there's no choice to go for it. Nine transformation pathways are indeed a big menu, but this talks to at least 200 of the leading companies in the world spread across different product sectors, geographies. So there's a big carrying capacity there. Our role with this report is to really mobilize, to give a common, common vision, 
and to really drive this this need to change capitalism uh, with all those 200 voices. Well, it's a very meaty, comprehensive and thought provoking report, all 118 pages of it. Um, you can find it at WBCSD.org. It's called Vision 2050, Time to Transform, published this week by the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. Peter Bacher is president and CEO of WBCSD. Thanks so much, Peter. Thank you, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll learn more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. As I said earlier, we have seven free e-newsletters every week. Uh, go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to learn more about them. We love to hear your comments, questions, and tips. Our email address is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.